Well, let's jump on in, back in to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're about two-thirds of the way through it. We'll get into chapter 8 tonight. We're going to be um, walking through verses 23 of chapter 7 all the way up to the first verse of chapter 8. And we're really in a two-part series here all throughout Ecclesiastes. Solomon's teaching us about wisdom, and he's teaching us all that he learned in his life. As he gets to the end of his life, he writes this book, and it's, uh, it is from the wisest man that ever lived outside of Jesus. Um, but yet he's talking about everything under the sun. So it's a depressing book in the sense that um, everything under the sun is, is broken. And it needs to be redeemed. And the earth cries out for God and humanity cries out for God. And so Jesus is hope in this series because we recognize Solomon's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about earth. And we have to look above the sun if we want hope. And so we have been in the last chapter, so walking through uh, kind of a, a spiritual um, a pit stop for your soul, so to speak, a, a spiritual heart check. And we are in part two. Now to catch you up with what we did last week, we were in... Uh, verses 15 through 22, and I asked you four questions, and tonight I'm going to ask you five questions, so nine total um, in this two-part series. And the first one we found in verse 15 is, do you live by karma? Now, we know theologically we don't believe in karma, but the idea that an eye for an eye, or you get what you deserve, or what goes around comes around, some of us, we functionally live that way, and so we lack grace in giving it to other people, and recognize that sometimes we believe, well, you know what? If bad things are happening to you, maybe it's because you've done bad things, and there's truth to that, but it doesn't account for the sovereignty of God and the gospel. Um, God breaks out of um, the idea of karma being the possibility of how the earth is run completely. So do you live by that? And number two, do you let the moral pendulum swing? It talked about um, how, how some of us, when we realize, man, we can't, we can't put God in a box, and sometimes bad things happen to decent people, and how do we justify this in our mind? And one of two ways you will go is either bear down and be super religious and say, I'm just going to try harder than ever and make God love me, or you'll veer off the other way and say, you know what, what's the point? I'm just going to rebel. Who cares, right? We see in the prodigal son both of those stories. Um, thank God Jesus covers uh, covers by his blood both of those types of folks. Then we ask in verse 20, it said that we were sinners, that surely no man is without sin. And so the question is, are you, are you self-righteous? You might say, yeah, I, I'm a sinner, but do you really believe that you're flawed? Do you believe uh, that you need to be changed, that you're not always right? And last but not least, we asked from verse 21 and 22, Solomon was talking about eavesdropping. He said, don't eavesdrop, you might not like what you hear. That's a problem apparently 3,000 years ago. We talked about, uh, are you a people pleaser? Are you approval junkie? Do you uh, live and die based on what people say about you? And uh, we generally don't like what people say about us because we know what we say about other people. And so those are four heart questions, and we're going to jump in in verse 23, and I'm going to rifle off five more. So sit back, enjoy the ride. Some of this stuff you'll write down now and be able to, to sit in prayer and challenge yourself later on. But we believe God's going to do a work in us today. So if you've got a Bible, Ecclesiastes verse, chapter 7, verse 23. Again, we're in the NLT for this series um, instead of the ESV because we don't want to have to translate a translation. Amen? All right, verse 23. I have always tried my best. Is that you? I've always tried my best to let wisdom guide my thoughts and action. I said to myself, I'm determined to be wise. Have you ever been that way? You ever said, I'm not going to make mistakes anymore. I'm going to be a better human. I'm going to get it together. I'm tired of all these mistakes. But it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. 
We find we keep making mistakes. He said, I tried to be wise in everything, but I, I guess I, sometimes I'm just not that wise. This is coming from the wisest man outside of Jesus. I should tell you something. Wisdom is always distant. It's difficult to find. In verse 25, I searched everywhere, determined to find wisdom and to understand the reason for things. Again, he's talking about things under the sun. You want wisdom. There's a worldly wisdom, and there's a wisdom that comes from God. And he said, I, I searched for wisdom. You can find a worldly wisdom, but you're only going to find wisdom that comes from God if you search and seek God. Determined to find wisdom and to understand the reason for things, I was determined to prove to myself, I love this, that wickedness is stupid and that foolishness is madness. Now, why would you have to prove to yourself that wickedness is stupid and that foolishness is madness? How about because we do foolish things and wicked things and we think, well, in the moment it seemed like the right thing to do. And he's saying, oh, I wanted to prove, I wanted to get to that point where I realized I'm going to live this way. It's going to be wise. It's going to be good. And I'm going to never fall into a temptation or trap to do stupid things and wicked things. I'm just going to be on the straight and narrow, but I find myself in the ditches sometimes. First question, are you being wise or foolish? Are you being wise or foolish? Solomon's ultimately saying, the well of wisdom is incredibly deep, but no man is ultimately going to get to the bottom of it. No man's going to get to the bottom and say, I know everything. No one's going to say, I finally got it all figured out. Come around, children. Let me tell you about life. I got this all down packed. No matter of fact, this couple verses, this is kind of like, this is Solomon's Romans 7, is it not? <laughs> Where he's saying, as the wisest man that we know up until this point in history, He's saying, I, there, there's things, just like Paul, where I didn't want to do, but I ended up doing them. And there's things that I wanted to do, but I didn't do them. And, oh, who's going to save me from this body of death? Praise be to Jesus. At least that's what Paul says, because he knows Jesus. Solomon, though, he's just saying, sought to do a whole bunch of wise stuff. Couldn't find the bottom of that barrel. And uh, I find that I make mistakes still. Are you being wise or foolish? We have bought and um, we purchased Four houses in the last 10 years uh, as we moved around. And um, each time that we've purchased a house and we've looked online at the MSL listings, I've, I've jumped onto Google Earth. Any of you ever get on Google Earth and you check? Like, and I wanted to see the street, especially when we were from a different state. And I was like, man, I can't be there, but I want to see the street view of the house. And you're like getting every angle and you're spinning in circles trying to, trying to see exactly what this is going to look like. And... and you want the details, right? You want to see, man, I want, what, what, what was this? What's this all about? I want to see the street that I'm going to be on. You crawl, you creep like a internet stalker down the road that you're going to live on to see what your neighbor's houses look like and picture yourself there. And on occasion, what I would find myself doing and not too often, but on occasion I would pull back and I would see uh, the neighborhood and then I would see the city and then I would see the state and the nation. And then you get that outer space picture and you're like, whoa, Google Earth is crazy. Sometimes it's good uh, to do that in your life and to just park for a split second to take a deep breath and to say, I, I, need, I need a bigger perspective of my recent actions, my current actions, the decisions I'm making. I, I need to see, have I been wise recently or have I been foolish recently? It's good to do that. Some of us um, might be surprised if we do that to find out, that maybe we're not making the best decisions. Maybe there's ideas that you've had lately that aren't the best ideas. Maybe maybe uh, decisions that you've made that weren't the best. Um, 
Maybe there's money that you've spent, stances you've taken, fights that you've had, hills that you've stood on, that if you had to do it over again, you would do it differently. Solomon's saying, man, I came up to each one of those thinking I was going to do the wise thing. But you don't always do the wise thing. But if you don't ever park and just say, let me analyze my life a little bit, then you can find yourself going down a long road that who knows if or when you're going to ever stop. Some of us get late in life and we look back and we say, why have I not taken stock of things? A lot earlier, you know, back when I could change them, change the direction of my life. Now, we just think it's all going to work itself out, right? Here's one thing we have to understand. You're going to see this theme all throughout tonight, is there is a huge gray area. I'm going to be careful how I say this. Because deists would say that God is not, that there's a God that exists, but he's not present in the everyday actions or decisions of people. I want to make sure this doesn't come across as a, as a deist point of view. Um, but there's a lot of decisions in your life that you're going to want to hear from God, a clear yes or no, um, but you won't necessarily hear a clear yes or no. In that they're decisions that aren't necessarily a matter of sin, but stupidity. This is why the Old Testament in particular is full of what we call wisdom literature, being wise and being foolish, right? Like, for example, um, that impulse decision to buy that car that that looks like it could be a lemon because you saw the track record, but the sun's shining and it looks sweet today, and I know I don't know if I can afford it, but I'm going to get it. And then three months later, it breaks down a whole bunch of times, and you're just like, ah, wasn't necessarily sinful, just stupid. Uh, or maybe the, the guy who has a leak in his house, and he knows he should fix it, but he's just kind of lazy, and, and he doesn't fix it until then pipes burst, and, and there's a lot more damage. It's not necessarily sinful, but it was a stupid decision. Or the responsible young gal who um, wanted some company and should have bought a puppy, but instead dated that guy who she had to take care of and train and feed and, and, and then should have bought a puppy. Not necessarily sinful, but just stupid. So God isn't saying you need to repent. He's saying be smart. Like a good father, sometimes when we're walking out the door, he says, just, hey, just be wise today. Just be wise today. And Solomon's saying, I, I tried to do that. I remember when I was um, a kid, we had gerbils. It started with like two gerbils, and then there was like six million gerbils because gerbils create gerbils very fast. And I remember watching them just as a little boy in their little tanks, and, and they would have their little wheel there, and I'd watch them just spin, just go in that little wheel just over and over and over. I look back at that, and I wonder, I wonder if they knew that they weren't going anywhere. I mean, how smart is a gerbil, right? Like, I wonder if they really knew that they weren't going anywhere at all. Like, in their minds, they might have thought, I'm going somewhere. I'm making incredible progress. I feel like this wheel is taking me into outer space. Sometimes it's, it's hard, it's difficult to know when you're in the rat race, whether you're actually getting anywhere, whether you're getting where you want to go in life, where God wants you to go. And I think some of us need to park tonight and let this whole thing be a chance for us to breathe and say, am I being wise? When I look at the decisions in the last few months, this week, the things that maybe, maybe I thought were good ideas, but as I pull back a little bit, I realize some of my brokenness and the drama in my life, I'm going in cycles and circles and I don't see it, but everyone around me is looking at me saying, 
dude, you need to stop. You need to stop. And you're sitting there thinking, I thought I was doing pretty good. Let me challenge you on this as we go on to the next one. Some of us pray. We pray to ask God things, to hear from God. One thing that's good just to pray sometimes is God sift me. And not just not just hear from him or talk to him, but to, to just say, God, sift me and teach me things that I don't understand and show me things that I'm blind to right now in ways that only your spirit can do. Some of us don't know the Holy Spirit well at all. Some of us don't know the Holy Spirit well at all. And we say, well, my relationship with Jesus is good. How's your relationship with the Holy Spirit? And let God sift you and teach you and show you your blind spots and show you where you're weak. And I would encourage you um, as well in this. It's been said that your walk with God is a, is a community project. Uh, let other people speak into you, godly people who can speak into your life and say, you know what? You're a little off track because they'll see things that you didn't, you didn't see. You didn't see. Are you being wise or foolish? Verse 26. I discovered that uh, it's going to get weird tonight. I just uh, Sometimes it's really easy to preach Scripture, and then other times it's like, what do I do with this? This is one of those nights. I discovered that a seductive woman is a trap more bitter than death. Her passion is a snare, and her soft hands are chains. And those who are pleasing to God will escape her, but sinners will be caught in her snare. This is going to be fun. I'm going to go light on the personal stories for this one and go heavy on the explanations. All right. So <clears throat> question number six, are you living in purity? Are you living in purity? This is going to be the start of several verses that talk about a woman, right? And it doesn't really paint this woman in a good light. And so scholars have debated for well, probably 3,000 years, as to what exactly Solomon's referring to. So let me just rifle through four general understandings, and this is taken from a whole bunch of theological journals and commentaries and scholarly points of view as they analyze what he's talking about. And let's, let's try to nail down what he might be referring to, because the first one is that he, he's writing to a male audience, which in the time was probably true, and he's just anti-women. He's just a woman hater. Because you see these verses, but it actually it gets a little worse here in a bit. It's just degrading to woman. I, I, I would not um, buy into that, number one, because of the whole counsel of Scripture. And number two, uh, he wrote a little book called Song of Songs. He has a much brighter view of women in that, amongst a whole bunch of other Proverbs, uh, like Proverbs 31. So, I don't know if that one falls into track. Number two, it could be domestic strife. You see the curse in Genesis 3.16. Some scholars say, because Genesis is quoted several times throughout Ecclesiastes or referred to, that back in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 16, when God curses Adam and Eve, he says to the woman that she'll have offspring and it'll be painful and all that. But he says that you will desire your husband, but he will rule over you. And some translations translate that a little different, but there in the Hebrew is a negative connotation that there'll be strife. Like men and women are going to want each other, but they're going to hate each other. In marriage and, well, in life. And so 
Some scholars say this is talking about how men and women, they just don't get along very well sometimes. Number three, uh, some believe that when he says uh, this woman, that it's actually a metaphor for foolish living or wickedness. You see in Proverbs chapter 9, he talks about, because Solomon wrote that as well, lady folly. And he explains lady folly. And so sometimes speaking of this woman is a metaphor for bigger uh, moral dilemmas. And then number four, he could just be referring to his past experience, right? If you say, um, well, I dated a bunch of guys and they were all horrible, I realize that might be your personal experience, but we're not going to say all guys are horrible or vice versa about girls, right? But you can have personal experience that you can speak of. You just didn't make it into the Bible. Solomon did. So what's the right answer? Well, I can't tell you because I'm just a guy, but I would go for a combination of two, three, and four if I had to choose. Number one, no, because of Song of Songs. But the domestic strife issue, there's some legitness to that. The metaphor, yeah, definitely based on Proverbs 9, I could see Solomon speaking to wickedness and folly um, and using a woman as a metaphor. And then his past experience, yeah, definitely. Um, He's got a thousand wives (laughs) <laughs> he's got issues. He's got 700 wives, 300 concubines is what Second Kings says. But let's jump in um, to a little bit of challenge in this. Let me ask you, ladies, you look at this. Just take this straight for what it says and not go all metaphorical on us for a second. I discovered that a seductive woman is a trap more bitter than death. Her passion is a snare, and her soft hands are chains. And those who are pleasing to God will escape her, but sinners will be caught in her snare. Let me ask you, are you using your external beauty uh, to manipulate people? Are you using your your personality, your beauty, uh, seduction to um, work your way up at work or to increase friendships or to get back at people by dating other people? Or, or, or have you messed with people's hearts? Um, have you manipulated because you just could and you saw that someone was weak and you saw that you had something that you could leverage and you used it in an ungodly way? Have you uh, seen your beauty? as a crutch that you've leaned on in relationships and maybe even led with. He said, I know how to, I know how to pull people in. I know, I, know how, um, I know how to make people like me. And it didn't seem that bad, but you know God's heart for you. And you know that ultimately he wants to see your internal beauty increase as you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And it's very important to know external beauty is valuable, just like internal beauty is valuable. Um, it's something to be thankful for and, and to be enjoyed with your spouse. But you got to recognize that external beauty, to lead with it and to lean on it as a crutch, is spiritually lazy. It will be much harder for you, and I'm talking men and women, to, to let people to see the internal beauty than external, because obviously they see the external first, and that's what you can give them, and you don't even have to open up sometimes internally. But I, I want to encourage you, the heartbeat of what this is saying is make sure, ladies and, and guys, really, um, that you don't let your external beauty um, elevate uh, forsaking your internal beauty, if that makes sense. Both have value, internal and external, but don't rely on the external at the cost of the internal. Number two, let's talk about men. Let's, let's pretend we're Solomon for a second. Now, this is going to get awkward. I'm going to address some things straight up. It's Wednesday night. We can do that. Um, are you given into temptation? 
Solomon had a harem. Again, Second Kings says he had 700 wives. He, he, had, he had 300 concubines. Let me ask you, if we checked your search engine history on your computer, not just in the last few weeks, but say in the last five years, would you feel comfortable with that? If we posted it up on the screen Sunday morning and let everyone take a look at it. You see, it's weird to me, but it makes sense. Solomon has a, a bad view of women at this point to some degree. If this isn't just metaphor, if this is his past experience here. Um, but isn't it weird that he writes Song of Songs? Have you ever read that? It's going to make you blush, right? Where he talks about this marriage where they're satisfied with each other and they're seeking each other. And it's this beautiful relationship between men and women or a man and a woman. And, and then you see him writing this. What happened between Song of Songs and this? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Solomon was warned as a king, just like David and, and his predecessor Saul, that kings are not to count up and have a whole bunch of chariots and horses for themselves, and they're not to have a whole bunch of wives, and they're, they're not to have several things. And he went from one wife to 700. At some point he said, one wife isn't good enough, I'm going to have more. And then I'm going to have a bunch of women who, who are just around me to do what I want, concubines, mistresses, a thousand of them, all together. So it's not necessarily women that, that gave him a bad taste in his mouth. It's Solomon's lack of self-control when his lust and temptation took him to a bad place that made him view women poorly. Our culture loves to blame women for stuff that men don't take responsibility for. And to some degree, you see this in Solomon's life. Some of us, we know this temptation uh, well because uh, we'll be in church on a Sunday and, and we'll look at uh, women and we'll have a high view of them and men will say, well, that's my sister in Christ, that's my sister in Christ. And yet with a click, sometimes within minutes or hours of being around your sisters in Christ, now they're your personal prostitutes because you're online and you have a harem all of yourself and it's called the internet. And you can gather a thousand women to yourself as quick as you want because you want to be like Solomon. There's good news, though. Although there doesn't seem to be a lot of good examples uh, of resisting temptation, Jesus is one. And his spirit, if you read in, in the Gospels where he's led out into temptation, uh, it says that the spirit came upon him and that he was led by the spirit. He was fulfilled by the spirit. He rejoiced in the spirit and that same spirit lives in you. We need more examples of overcomers. We need men to stop relating to each other because of their sin and brokenness and start relating a little more in our victory in Christ. We've got to change and shift the culture from a bunch of broken sinners to a bunch of overcoming saints. We recognize there's always going to be temptation. Is there anyone who can be a good example? And Jesus is. And that's awesome. You guys having fun yet? All right, we got, we got a few more. Verse 27 to 28, This is my conclusion, says the teacher. 
I discovered this after looking at the matter from every possible angle. So he doesn't flippantly write this. This isn't like, hey guys, I'm 30, I'm about to go on a boat, on a cruise and have some fun, but I'm going to write down some things I've learned about life real quick. I'm kind of hungover, let me just get this out of... No, he, he sat down. He said, I've looked at this on every possible angle. Like, there, there's nothing I haven't exhausted to find this. In verse 28, though I have searched repeatedly... I have not found what I was looking for. Here's where it gets a little more weird. Only one out of a thousand men is virtuous or trustworthy, upright. One of a thousand men. But not one woman. Thank Guys, you're smart. No one said amen. You guys are learning. But not one woman. Let me, let me ask you one more question. Are you upright? Are you upright? Are you trustworthy? Are you, are, are you righteous in your life? Are you chauvinist? Are you feminist? Both of them are bad. You see, when people um, are hurt by people, they look for someone or something to blame. And our culture, uh, one of the things that we've chosen to blame is gender. And if you have uh, men who have been hurt by women or women who have been hurt by men, they say, well, I can't be around women anymore. They're just trouble. Yeah, it's a good old country song, right? Women are trouble. You stay away from them. You just sit in the bar and you drink all by yourself and get a four-wheeler and go have fun and forget about those ladies. And then the ladies say, well, I've just been around a bunch of losers. I just need to be with my girlfriends and hang out with them. And we start to demonize the opposite sex, right? Because we're looking for someone to blame, and so we just blame a gender, just like we blame races, just like we blame any other thing we can. And we've got to understand, um, when you see gender as the problem, you'll see male chauvinism and feminism as the solution. And both are wrong, and you need to know that. Obviously, male chauvinism, the idea that men are superior to women, we know that's wrong, right? Um, but feminism, even in today's world, is still viewed as an equality issue. It's not an equality issue. There's an agenda, and it's not to be equal with men. It's to be better than men. And you need to know that. And, and and so if you view gender as the problem, you'll see feminism or you'll see chauvinism as the solution. And both are bad, both are broken, and both are coping mechanisms for pain that you've had from the opposite sex. They're simply coping mechanisms. They're your way of justifying your pain and saying, you know what, I'm not going to make that mistake again. And God's looking down saying, you've got to understand you're fighting the wrong fight. Your fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not... Are men better than women or women better than men? No, both are broken. Both are broken. And when you recognize that gender isn't the problem, it can't be the solution when sin is the problem, and it is the gospel is the solution. So, be upright. Be upright. This is bigger than men or women. Solomon says, and picture being in his position, he says, a thousand men, and I only found one. That's virtuous. And I didn't find any women. Now keep in mind, it's not just a random number. Got 700 wives, 300 concubines. But then he's got a whole bunch of guys on the flip side that work for him and serve in his kingdom. And he's saying, I've sat on my throne knowing that people like me because I'm king and they don't like me for me. And I know people have tried to manipulate me. And I know that people hate me, but they put on a smile because they want to be near me because I got power and money and wealth. And I know that people have horrible motivations. And I'm looking at my kingdom and I'm looking at all of the guys. And I'm thinking, 
be lucky if I could find one of them in a thousand who's got a decent heart, who's kind of upright, who's virtuous. And then I look at all my, my wives. I got 700 of them. I can't trust them. And the 300 concubines, well, they don't have much of a choice in the matter. I can't trust any of them. So both are pretty bad percentages. But again, this is Solomon's experience. It's kind of like an employer, (laughs) really anywhere in America in 2017. What do they say when they're trying to hire somebody? I can't find anyone. We're the darn anymore. It's hard to find good help. No one wants to work, right? Here's ultimately what we're gathering from this. If you can find godly people, forget gender, godly men and women, keep them close. And recognize you can switch jobs, you can switch cities, you can switch a lot of things in your life. When you find solid people who love Jesus, value those relationships. Value those relationships. Because it's hard to find people who are upright. Who say, I know we're in a broken world, but I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to love people. Who wants to do this together? Again, all of this points to Jesus because he's the one who has all the wisdom Solomon doesn't even have it all he can't he can't be perfect Jesus is perfect he says I can't find any men or women who are upright maybe one dude right and Jesus is upright he did all the things we can't do that's why he's the perfect sacrifice verse 29 I had a bunch of illustrations tonight but I'm skipping them because I kind of like the heavy feel sometimes I don't know Verse 29, but I did find this. God created people to be virtuous, but they have each turned to follow their own downward path. Some people don't believe in original sin. Read Ecclesiastes. We've twice in chapter 7. It says, people are sinners. People are sinners. Question number 8, do you blame God for evil? Do you blame God for evil? So verse twenty said the same thing. Surely no one's without sin. This is another verse on human depravity. People are broken. People are broken. We need to be redeemed. We need Jesus. You see, God's not evil. Man is evil. God created humanity good. And God is sovereign over all things. But sometimes I think we believe so much, and we get so caught up in God's sovereignty that some of us start to blame him for being responsible for evil. You've got to understand, nothing slips through God's hands unnoticed. He knows all things. He's sovereign over all things. But he has, to whatever degree, seen his overarching plan include letting certain things play out. doesn't mean he's not in control. It just means he's not always pushing the buttons. And if he does push the buttons, it changes it from being evil to of God because he makes the rules. I know that's complicated for us, but it makes sense to him because it's all about his glory. And some of us need to understand God gave us Uh, Because he's perfect light and there's no darkness in him. He created us um, in a way that's good way back when we're talking Adam and Eve. But he gave us the capacity to sin. And some of us, some of us, we need to do a heart check because we're blaming God for things we shouldn't. Um, and, And what we're finding is that in doing that, in recognizing that, you know what? That person got murdered because another person murdered him. And that guy or that gal broke my heart. God, why did you? No, no, no. Because that guy or that gal broke your heart. And that person spent your money and they stole your money and they did wrong with your money. 
God, why? No, because they did wrong with your money. Even further than that, the evil that resides within them, we can give the old devil the credit for all that. The hate, the crime, the brokenness, the drunk driver who killed your friend or your family member, we blame God. Why, why, why? But we got to understand it's not God's fault. And this world is not the way that he created it, and it's not the way that he's going to remake it. But in the meantime, it's broken, and we are first fruits of his redemption. We're first fruits. That's why it feels so awkward to be here sometimes. Because the world's groaning out to be redeemed by God, screaming through earthquakes and tornadoes and all kinds of brokenness. We're broken, and people are screaming out through addictions and brokenness in every sort of way. We're broken, and yet those who say, Jesus, be Lord, and his spirit is placed in us, we are first fruits. We belong to a kingdom that this kingdom doesn't know anything about, and that's why it feels so uncomfortable and awkward. Because we don't belong here. It doesn't make sense to uh, to blame God for evil. I, I watched um, a show on on Netflix recently called Last Chance University. You guys seen that? You heard about that? Most of you could care less about that kind of thing. It's a football show. It's about this JUCO, this junior college, who uh, you got D1 football players who were kicked out of Georgia and Mississippi, all over the place, and, and they need a second chance. They need their last chance for many of them. And so they go to this little place, and 600 person scuba mississippi in the middle of nowhere and they get a chance to play juco football and long story short i was watching an episode the other day and the football coach they've won several national championships so this is a a solid program the football coach in the middle of the game he's yelling at his players and one of his players he just tells get out of here and then one of the moms of the players was yelling down and he said security remove her And then at one point in another game, he told his offensive coordinator, who kind of smirked at him, he said, you get out of here. He said, you go up to the booth. His offensive coordinator, the guy who had stood next to him the whole time, who was calling all the plays, who had his players all around him, and the head coach, he he turns around and he said, you leave. Get out of here. And it was awkwardness. And I just was was like, gosh, this feels so weird. Because they're like, no, surely he's not doing this. We're on the same team. Like, we're in this together. And he's like, no, he's doing it. And that's what it's like when we blame God. As if like he doesn't want good for humanity. As if he's going to somehow give us the gospel, but then be pushing buttons of evil saying, I'm really just messing with y'all. I hate y'all. This Jesus thing, yeah, it's pretty good, but hey, you're lucky you got that. I'm going to just be a mean landlord. And you're going to hate me. No. No. The gospel's proof. Among a million other things, he's good. He loves us. We can't blame him. It's like Silas when he gets mad at discipline. If you got kids, you know. They'll look at you. They'll say things to you that you don't think they should ever be saying to you. They'll, they'll make faces at you. They'll hate you. But they, they don't really hate your discipline. Your discipline's good in most cases. Right? It's good. What they really hate is their heart that's sinful and rebellious and that it's coming smack dab against what is true and good. Just like the law in the Old Testament, it's perfect, it's holy, but our sin isn't. That's why we don't do very well with it.
He didn't author evil, but he authored salvation. That is good news. Last but not least, verse 1 of chapter 8, this wraps up this passage. He says, in almost a poetic form, how wonderful to be wise. How wonderful. It's good to be wise. To analyze and interpret things. That's what we do with wisdom. We're able to, to look at the world and say, okay, some things don't make sense, but, but God did things this way and it makes sense now. Wisdom lights up a person's face, softening its harshness. Last but not least, on this soul pit stop, ask yourself, are you growing wise? Are you increasing in your wisdom? He says a couple things about wisdom. Wisdom does two things. It lights up a person's face. So it adds joy. It gives you, it gives you peace. And it softens its harshness. It gives you understanding. Wisdom says, okay, ah, with a smile and a deep breath, this makes sense. I have confidence and peace to do what God's asking me to do. It's a beautiful gift God gives us in wisdom. You see, life is full and you know this, of decisions that need wisdom. And I'll reiterate what I said earlier. Some of us will struggle in this walk with Jesus because we will ask God questions and we won't always get clear yes or no's and we'll assume, well, like we did something wrong or we're not hearing from God very well or we're a bad Christian. And again, there's a lot of times where you have to make decisions super quick and you can't just wait for yes or no. It's a life and death. It's quick. It's fast. And you have to make a decision. And there's other times where, where God cares, but he's going to let you through his wisdom make a decision without saying, clearly you go this way or you go this way, but you've got to be in tune with his spirit. And we got to understand that there's going to be plenty of times. Do I go here? Do I go there? Do I read this book? Do I listen to that person? Do I date them? Do I invest here? Do I buy that? Do I... Where it's not necessarily sinful, it's just wise or foolish. And he's going to speak to you in a way that you might not recognize. It's through wisdom and you building wisdom that's of God, not of this world. And you say, well, that's not really God speaking to me. No, that's God speaking to you. He's giving that to you to store inside. What did I say? wisdom, wisdom that comes from God. Sometimes we want those in the moment, clear yes and no's, and we understand that God still speaks to us. He just speaks to us via wisdom when we don't hear yes or no. You need discernment. You need to be able, so much of my job, even as a pastor, I pray about, I say, God, show me, do we do this as a church? Do we do that? And I don't always hear yes or no's, but I know through godly wisdom and through spirit and, and, and through his word, you know what? The wise thing to do is for us to do this. This is why Tara and I, we, we did a will not too long ago. Because when you have kids, wills and trust, you just do them because it's not about your stuff. It's about the people in your life, and, and that's a whole other issue. And, and so we had an opportunity to do one, and so we did it, and we were able to concretely, black and white, checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. This is what we want done at the end of our life with all of our stuff. But then there's this one thing at the end about end-of-life care. Do you pull the ventilator? Do, do, you, do you leave them on there? Do you leave the feeding tube in? This is stuff for our lives. If we're incapacitated, we can't make these decisions. And it's just not so easy to just say, yep, do it or don't do it. But we had to check the box that says, give the people we're entrusting, the godly people, the opportunity to make the choice. 
Because what do you do? There's so many times in life where you're like, I don't, I can't tell you. I, I can't just give you a general answer. It's so situational, but you've got to be in tune with the Spirit. God made it this way. He doesn't want us to get so comfortable with His will that we don't need His Spirit. He doesn't want us to get so comfortable with His will that we don't need His Spirit. That is by design, because if you're so comfortable with God's will that you don't need His Spirit, you're not going to walk by faith, because faith has, by definition, both confidence and a little bit of uncomfortability. All mixed together. But you look at Jesus. Oh, you look at Jesus. He lived a life full of wisdom, didn't He? He's the fullness of grace and truth. He had peace. He had confidence. He sleeps on boats during storms because he knows God's will. He's got the Holy Spirit. And he's got peace. He's got joy. He's got confidence. I'll ask you one more time. How's your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Some of us just don't know the Holy Spirit. We don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. I'll, um, I'll start to wrap it up with this, this last story here. Um, Tara and I, when we were first married, we noticed that we, um, appetite-wise, we, we did not like the same foods. Like, not even like, well, you like this stuff and I like this stuff. Like, no, we're not even close. Like, we despise what the other loves and we love what the other despises. And it's been comical over the years trying to go and order food. And we end up spending twice as much because we just don't want to eat the same stuff. And we celebrate when randomly we do find that, hey, we'll eat that same meal. And we don't share a lot of meals together in the sense that we literally physically share the same meal. We just don't, because we don't like the same stuff. And yet, we've been married for a whole bunch of years. i got a, man, I, nine, eight, nine. Oh my gosh, thank God she's not here. Somewhere <laughs> above five and less than ten. And so, 2008, this will be nine. This We're going on nine, yes. Yes, nine. Um, two weeks ago, we were sitting at the beach, having a wonderful time, and we... We're going to order, and Silas is hes doing his thing, and we're at this restaurant, and we're about to order our food, and uh, Tara's focused on Silas, and I'm looking at the menu, and, and I wouldn't have dreamed of doing this years ago, but um, I ordered my food, and she ordered her food, and she ordered like a catfish po' boy, and when you're on the beach, like you want fresh seafood, and I knew like that's coming from a farm. Like, we love catfish, and we love that, but, like, you can get that anywhere else, and, and so she ordered it. The waitress walked away, and I said, you don't want that. You don't want that. I wouldn't have said that years ago. It's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, you want the shrimp because that's coming. Like, they told us, like, that's coming straight. See the water over there? It just came from right there. This is what we came down here for. And she said, well, why, I, why didn't you tell me? And I said, okay, it's all good. And I got up and I went over and I told the waitress, I said, I'm so sorry. I hate to do this to you, but um, can we switch that for the shrimp? I didn't even ask Tara's permission. I just, I just did it. I just did it. And we got back and... Um, she was like, oh, I'm glad you did that. And she got the shrimp and she loved it and it was good. And years ago, again, I wouldn't have done that. But I did that now because I know my wife. And I've learned to know what she hates and I've learned to know what she loves. And again, back in the day, it was completely different than me. But when it comes to our relationship with God, you, you've got to know when you're a new believer, you can't trust your yourself. You, you, your flesh rules sometimes more than Christ in your life. And so you, you know 
pretty much God's will is whatever I want. It's the opposite. <laughs> and, but as you grow with Christ, and as you mature, as you get to know his spirit and you're led in wisdom and, and you wake up and you're, you're breathing in his spirit and you're, you're in his word and you start to learn what he hates and what he loves and you start to hate what he hates and love what he loves, then all of a sudden you'll find yourself in those very quick decisions, not being able to hear a yes or no, but, but speaking out of godly wisdom and discernment and not trusting your flesh, but trusting his spirit because you've spent time with him and you abide in Christ and you get to know God and you feel comfortable making decisions. And this is the kind of wisdom that God wants you to have. That you say, listen, I might go the wrong way. I might, but I know my God and I'm comfortable with my God. And in the vast majority of decisions, if I had to make a quick decision on it without being able to hear that quick yes or no, I could probably make the godly decision because I'm with him and I know him and I love him. And you can't replace that. You can't sit and and go through enough church services or check off religious boxes and and, and be spirit-led. Like you've got to invest and you've got to say, I'm putting in the time and I'm going to abide in you. I'm denying myself and daily I want to be with you because you, you just can't. You can't replace that and still have that godly wisdom. So are you growing in wisdom? Don't just read the Bible. Dig into the Bible. Let it search and sift your soul. Be around godly people who can see blind spots in your life. Read books that that godly men and women that you know and trust. Read them and, and sift them and dig into them. Be around godly preachers who can speak into you. Have multiple avenues where you are mining for wisdom. Glean. Let me ask you, when it comes to wisdom, are you taking it serious? Are you taking it for granted? Are you digging into receiving more? Are you giving it out? There's a whole generation of people, even at Crosspoint, who who don't realize their value, that they are a wealth of godly wisdom, and they're sitting in the pews thinking, well, I don't know if I have a place here. It's mostly for younger people. And I'm saying, that's exactly why you're here. Because they're all begging to know, how do we raise our kids in a godly way? How, how, how How do we do this? And you're sitting back absorbing more and more knowledge, and God's saying, give that to the younger. Give that to the younger. Just get to know them. Just talk to them. Just pour into them. This is why we have grow groups. This is why we do stuff like this so that you can get to know each other and give wisdom to each other as the Spirit gives wisdom to you. Are you growing in wisdom? If you're going to grow in wisdom, you've got to abide in Jesus. You've got to get to know the Holy Spirit. You've got to take it serious. This is a gift from God. This is good news. Solomon got a taste of it. You get to have the fullness of it. Spirit came on him, the Spirit comes in you. Let's pray.